Hear the word of the Lord from Romans 1, 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is the word of the Lord. My name is Rob Spikestra, pastor of discipleship. Don't you like short people? I'm six inches about taller so, uh, than Justin, and so they've accommodated me for the summer, so I appreciate that uh, very much. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you, for, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. First, Father, we, we uh, are amazed that you have given us just your um, general revelation through nature and you have shown us things about yourself. You've shown the whole world, the entire humanity, Father, has a, it's been, has a testimony. Um, but then, Father, that then you would speak more clearly, more specifically, more um, in, in a way that can bring us into a relationship with you. So we thank you for your word. So it's out of that reality that we come to you right now in prayer and just ask that your spirit would be at work, uh, speak to our hearts, Minister to us where truth needs to be ministered. Help, help your people, Father, as they hear your word, that you would be um, ministering to what needs to be applied to each one here. So we are dependent upon you and are grateful for that, for you are wise and good, and will give us just what we need today. So we pray for your blessing again. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One of the remarkable qualities of God's word is that like a high mountain river, it's guaranteed to be refreshing, um, flowing from a source that is eternally refreshing for us. And when you think about that picture of a high mountain river, there's rivulets to go off. And, and what we find within God's Word is we find that even like a passage like this, that there are uh, principles, truths that are many, and so my job is to be praying and be seeking God's will in terms of what are the, what's the truth or truths that God wants me to be bringing forth to you today. Because remarkably so, not only are there these many truths and principles that God gives us within His Word, but then uh, he, he begins to take that down into our hearts. And so there's many applications, and those applications are very specific to each one of us here today. And so the process of trying to determine... Uh, what exactly is to be preached today is one of which um, I try to uh, really depend upon the Spirit of God to help me to kind of lead me in, in a particular direction. So when I came to this passage, uh, we, we have this, this subject of the subject of the wrath of God, and I can tell you, I, I really tried hard to find something else to preach on today. Um, it's, like, it's like this wart 
uh, on the nose, the, this obvious thing, the, 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 this, this wrath of God. And so why I didn't really relish putting together a message around that topic, and, and, because most, most admittedly, we don't want to really think about the wrath of God. Um, I just kept on coming back to it, coming back to it, and coming back to it, realizing that uh, this is what we need to be thinking about in this morning. So, so we shy away from God's wrath because we just don't really know how to square his wrath with the, the rest of his character. And so we look upon his wrath, <clears throat> like I pictured it for you, and that is a wart on his character. We, we think of it maybe as a blotch on an otherwise beautiful portrait of his deity or a blot on his divine government of the world. And so we tend to feel like we need to make an apology about his wrath. And while we would not go so far as to openly admit what I just described, it's a blemish of the divine character, although I just described that for you and now you know it in this public, um, we don't regard it with delight, or at least I don't think we do. And so therefore, we don't like to think about it. And if we're honest, we might even say we resent the wrath of God. But here's what I discovered. Rather than resenting the wrath of God, the wrath of God is something we can rejoice in. And surprisingly, for those in Christ, we unwittingly cherish. So let's look at the passage God has given to us today and see, what we can, see if we can find that in, in this passage. Now Paul has told his Roman readers that um, that he is, look at verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the word good news, or we have it in our translation, the gospel, the good news implies that there is something bad. And so the bad news that Paul wants us to understand uh, begins here in this text the, with the wrath of God, but he continues to lay out bad news upon bad news upon bad news all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And in laying out the bad news, he's answering not only of the question, what is the bad news that I need good news, but also why is the power of God needed? And how does faith fit into this picture. So Paul begins to answer these questions by starting with, in our text, the wrath of God. God is angry. One of the reasons we struggle with the wrath of God is because we view wrath, and by the way, when I use the word Wrath, we can also translate, it can also be translated anger. There's no difference between the word there. So I'm going to be using those words interchangeably, wrath or anger. We view, when we view wrath, we view it through our finite, fallible expressions of wrath. And so when we speak of our own anger, in our best expressions of anger, we might call it righteous anger. And we have a number of, number of reasons right now of why we should be righteously angry. The, the two most recent shootings, for instance, First, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas, the event in which defenseless children are gunned down ought to 
anger us. And generally we know we ought to be angry and that that anger ought to be poured out on something or something. And so in the aftermath, as we learn details over the course of the several tragic hours, we get angry by failures. Again, looking for someone to receive at least some of our anger. Shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, again, we immediately sense the injustice of the moment. People are going in to be healed and they are killed. A doctor goes to, to, to help people and he's killed. Our anger over the injustice of those killings is right and good. And so there is this righteous anger. But more often when we have to con- express, uh, confess that our expressions of anger are out of balance, out of control, So that even when we feel we have just cause, we know that in the later, saner moment, as we, in our mind's eye, look back at that moment of which we we got angry, we we, we were red in the face. We can just imagine what we must have looked like, red in the face with the blood boiling over what we have just gotten angry over and and the the yelling at the top of our lungs. We we look at that moment in, in that saner moment and we look back and think, yeah, I was just really wrathful. That was wrath. And certainly, God isn't like that. No, He's not. No, He's not. The wrath of God, rather, is something that we can rejoice in, and surprisingly for those in Christ, we unwittingly cherish. So let's see, let's look about, let's learn about this anger. What is God angry about? Well, look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, notice there, first of all, the wrath of God is revealed. It's a present tense. It's, a, it's an expression of reality that is always true. It's, a, it's an ongoing, constantly, the, the, the wrath of God is revealed. So we can look back in the Old Testament, and we can look out into the present, and we can even look into the future, and we would discover that there, that there is wrath. So the first thing we see here is that God's wrath comes against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. See, The wrath of God is a personal wrath. God is personally angry. And in the same way, our ungodliness and our unrighteousness is also personal. In other words, we personally sin. Now, first, I want you to notice two things here. First, I want you to notice this. First of all, his wrath is against, look there, all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Uh, Meaning, the sin we tend to overlook the sin that we tend to, you know, excuse away. No, he says all ungodliness and unrighteousness receives God's wrath. And then secondly, rather than calling these things, which I just did, sin, Paul calls them ungodliness and unrighteousness. He could have used the word sin, but he doesn't. He uses these two words, and he does it because it is a reminder of the standard God himself. When we sin, we are unlike God. When we sin, we are not right. So the first thing we find here is that God is rightfully angry. 
about ungodliness and unrighteousness. But now notice, then notice how Paul digs deeper. His wrath is against the suppression of truth. Look again, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. His wrath is against the suppression of truth. Now, what truth? Verses 19 and 20. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God is angry about the suppression of truth, about his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. So what Paul is saying here is, is that nature has made him who is invisible, visible. And Paul doubles down on humanity's guilt of suppressing this truth by saying that nature makes it, look at verse 19 there again, nature makes it plain to them. Verse 20, we are clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that there is no excuse. Well, what has nature specifically made plain? And how might this help us understand God's wrath? Well, he's made plain to them two things, his eternal power and divine nature. So let's look at his eternal power. Since day one of creation, nature speaks clearly of his eternal power. This is God's never-failing omnipotence which was reflected in the original creation, but continues to be reflected in the sustaining uh, of creation. In other words, it's ongoing, uh, ongoing existence. An article in the Nature Conservancy, uh, August 2020 uh, edition, it's a secular humanist journal with no stake in it advocating for God <laughs> as the creator. It, it, it titles this way, it starts out this way, the power of nature, and then has a byline to help us understand what we're going to be reading here, uh, while nat natural systems are under threat like never before, nature is not as fragile as we sometimes think. And so then what the article does, it testifies of nature's power in the obvious and in the subtle. So beginning with the obvious, it reads this. One of its principal components, the hydrological cycle of the planet, for example, is a system of extraordinary complexity and power. The energy released over the course of a few days by a single hurricane is equivalent to that used by the entire world economy in a year. <laughs> and then they write, and that is a single storm. We marvel, we marvel at the power demonstrated to us in nature. Now, while hurricanes are obvious, how about the subtle? Well, they go on. People often marvel at the sight of some of our accomplishments, skyscrapers, interstate highways, or machines that fly, but these achievements are dwarfed by the awesome power of nature. Some of the most fundamental, sophisticated systems on the planet operate in the background, shapes our landscapes, and maintains a crucial processes in which we all depend. And then they go in and name two, probably of many, from photosynthesis to pollination. This is a recognition that even in the subtleties, 
There's a sustaining power of nature. And so there are articles upon articles that we could just, we could just go into, we could glean, as not only we look here, but we look into the stars, into the heavens, and we see the power of God, this omnipotence, power of God derived from him. And this is what he is saying here. This is nature is testifying, is testifying of, of his eternal power. You might be familiar with uh, Psalm 19, 1 through 6. It reads this way. So David, as he's uh, reflecting upon what he has seen out in the heavens, he, he, he writes this song. It goes this way. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Yet there is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Testifying of the, of the eternal power of God. Now, out of that testimony, God then is to be recognized as the Almighty, as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And that our allegiance is to go to Him. But of all His creation, the only ones who are not singing that song, humanity. We are, reborn, we are born in rebellion against God as Lord and King. And so look at what Paul says there in verse uh, 21. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. And in verse 23, we do this. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Now notice the digression going down in birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, we give our energy, our allegiance over to things that will never satisfy us. And so we are a people who are a testimony of the fact that while God has revealed himself in such clear ways through creation itself, rather than uh, submitting and uh, giving our allegiance to God, we give ourselves to lesser things. His eternal power. Now, in his eternal power, he's not conforming himself to some law that's handed down to him. If this was the case, he would no longer be almighty. No, rather, his wrath is simply being true to himself. So unlike our anger, where we're always out of balance in some way, God's is never out of balance into his perfections. His attributes work in perfect harmony with one another. Thus, his wrath is poured out on humanity for its rebellion against his authority. Now, we may ask, well, how have we seen this? And how are we seeing it today? Well, it was revealed first when the sentence of death was first pronounced, the earth cursed and man was driven out of the Garden of Eden. Or later, when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that, as according to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says, every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually, his wrath came in the form of a great flood. As an aside, and in response to the na national proclamation in, of June being LGBTQ Pride Month, it's not lost on God, and it ought not be lost on us, that the movement has hijacked the rainbow for its immorality. 
The rainbow was given as a sign of God's covenant of grace to Noah, to all of humanity, and to all creation, that despite our ongoing inclination to rebel against his reign, he said, I will not destroy the earth and all its inhabitants with another flood. It's a sign of his patience. It's a sign of his grace. It's a sign of this in the face of depravity. And so what they're doing is they're using a sign of patience and mercy as a banner of their rebellion. It has a huge implication for them of which we'll go into in just, in just a moment. So when we have we seen God's wrath? We've seen it at the fall. We've seen it at the flood. God's wrath was seen in the wrath of fire and brimstone on, on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's God's wrath is proclaimed in the curses of the law. It is God's wrath intimated in the institutions of the Old Testament uh, sacrifices. And on and on we could go in terms of, as we look at the Old Testament, uh, the recounting of God's condemnation and discipline of those outside and inside his covenants. But these were all just tokens. Tokens pointing to a supreme pinnacle demonstration of God's wrath for us to understand. Well, consider also the second thing that we suppress, and that is his divine nature. Again, look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation in the world and the things that have been made. Divine nature. Very simply, this testifies that there is a God. God's wrath doesn't uh, belong uh, to, excuse me, uh, before I get there, I I want to say this, that nature testifies that there is a God and that it testifies of His holiness, because that's what we would say. God is holy, one who is set apart like us. There is a God of whom we will have to give an account. And so if we look at nature, this is at least some information that we should understand. There is one who is over us. Unlike us, He is the one who is holy. Now, wrath is not one of the intrinsic, intrinsic perfections of God. God's wrath doesn't belong to his essence. But rather, God's wrath is a function of his intrinsic perfection. Namely, it's a function of his justice. Where there is no sin, there is no wrath. But there will always be his justice. God is just. And where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in the rebellion, there must be wrath or God is not just. And if he is not just, then his character can be cast into question And we understand this on a human level of how important it is that there is justice. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. Indifference to sin is a moral blemish. We know this. Right now, nations speaking out of the reality that they consist of people made in God's image, they are speaking out and calling for investigations of war crimes against Russia. 
And when a Russian soldier was recently sentenced to life for crimes against humanity, this sentence is a result of our understanding of the need for justice, a justice, justice that is innately in us because of the image of God. Wrath, rather than being a blemish, is the outcome of God's justice. And for this we rejoice because what do we want? We want justice. And so we don't have to look out there. We can begin to look into our own lives and what is it? We walk, walk down the day and we say, I want justice. And when somebody kind of treats us poorly, we want justice. It's innately within us. Nature testifies. It testifies of this God, this divine, who has a divine nature, the one who is to be just ultimately testifies of his justice, but also testifies of his goodness and wisdom. Jesus pointed out to his disciples that the reason we are to love our enemies and we are to pray for those who persecute us is this. Jesus said, God the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust Nature reveals that God is, uh, God is good. Nature reveals that God is wise. Proverbs 3, 19 through 20. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth, and by understanding he established the, uh, the heavens. By his knowledge the deeps broke open and the clouds dropped down with dew. So that when we study nature, we find it an amazing complex system of God's wisdom and of God's goodness and also of his justice. But the human condition is one which is in rebellion, and so in that rebellion we suppress the truth. We see only what we want to see. But look there at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him for His goodness, for His wisdom. And so on and on. An ongoing token of God's wrath is that we have become, you see there, futile in our thinking. So the now serious-minded psychologists and sociologists and philosophers are telling us that we, we are the ultimate determiners of what is reality and that reality is found within the autonomous self. And then this is pressed down now into our society so that we had that cultural moment when a female Supreme Court judge nominee is asked, what is a woman? And she has to confess that she doesn't have the confidence to be able to tell the inquirer. Or pressed down into our government-run schools where teachers must submit to the autonomous self of their students and identify them by the pronouns of the student's determined reality at that moment. See, that is the wrath of God. This is the present wrath of God that we're receiving, and that is that we are people who are futile in our thinking. Or even worse, we're foolish. Foolish hearts were dark. In verse 22, we're claiming to be wise, but we are becoming fools. See, the rest of the chapter, the rest of chapter 1 is, is that we're going to see is that what God does in His wrath is He gives us what we want. He gives us our desires. He gives us our desires that are broken. He says, you want this? This is my wrath upon you. You want what you want in your brokenness, in your rebellion? I'll give it to you. 
That is God's wrath. And God's wrath continues to lead itself down until we come to the point of hell. And what is hell? Hell is God giving us what we desire. We don't want God. And God says, if that's what you want, I'll give it to you. Rich young ruler in Luke chapter chapter 18, he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? He knew there was something wrong within him, and so Jesus said, replied, who are you calling good? There's only one who is good, God alone. And then he said to him, he said, I'll tell you what, what does the law say? And the rich young ruler says, the law says this. And so he, he named off the, the, the four, four laws that we have in terms of relationships with other people. Uh, or Jesus says this, he, 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 he says, don't steal, don't commit adultery, you know, those, those laws, the ones that are relationship with one another. And so he says, do, do those. And the man, the rich young ruler says, I have done those. I've done those since I was a child. So then Jesus says, well, you've only missed in one thing, and that is you need to give up all of your riches, sell your riches and give them to the poor and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler, even though he knew he had something missing within himself, the rich young ruler could not imagine that God would be so good that he could give all that up and have something truly satisfying for his soul. And so the text says he went away sad, for he was very rich. See, the reason why Jesus was saying, who are you calling good, is because he knew the problem was that the man didn't desire what was truly good, God himself. And so hell is a a separation from God. It's a separation from what is truly satisfying. It's a separation from him who would truly fill the soul. It's a separation from what we have been created for, and that is to give God glory by enjoying him forever. And so God, in his wrath, he gives us what we want, and so we are experiencing the wrath of God even in our day. We want to be an autonomous self and say, okay, you want to be an autonomous self? Run with that one and see how that works out for you. This is the wrath of God. And there'll be a day in which that wrath will be poured upon anyone who has yet to trust in Jesus Christ at the day of judgment. So the question you still have to have is, well, how can we rejoice in this wrath? How can we find joy in here? Well, we can find joy when we meditate on the ultimate expression of God's wrath and that all these tokens have been pointing towards. See, The joy is, is that God put forth his son as a substitutionary atonement for us. The joy is, is that Jesus Christ willingly gave himself up as one who was going to receive the wrath of God on our behalf. And see, we love that concept. We love the concept of substitutionary atonement. Uh, uh, Writers, novelists, uh, movie makers, they love this. They love substitutionary atonement. See, it's in that moment when we're watching that movie where the innocent steps in front of another person and takes the bullet on behalf of the intended victim. 
Or it's that, that innocent person who steps in front and pushes the, the, the unaware out of the way of the, the car that's coming upon them, and they receive the full impact of that car. We love it. It's a great moment in the movie or in the book. Because we, we know in our own psyche that we need someone to step in front of the wrath of God. And so taking our sins, and where sin exists, God's wrath exists. So taking our sins, God poured out, God the Father poured out His wrath on His Son. In anticipation of this, the gospel writer says that Jesus was greatly distressed and troubled. The Hebrew writer says that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And we know that he asked, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And then as he was up there on the cross, we know he said this. He shouted, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if this is how the Son of God trembled beneath the weight of God's wrath, how do you think we're going to stand apart from someone taking it for us? See, Paul writes in Romans 2, in the middle of this argument of showing that we need a Savior, we need this substitutionary atonement, we need someone to step in front of the bullet for us. He says uh, uh, this in uh, chapter 2, verse, verse 4 and 5, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so, my LGBTQ friends, and I say that sincerely, they are storing up wrath for themselves by having a banner of which God intended for grace and for them to be flaunting that our prayer is as we enter into their lives that we tell them there is a substitute for you. There is someone who will take the wrath of God that you have been storing up all this time. And it's Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, here's why we rejoice. And here's why you can rejoice. The wrath of God really deals with our sins. See, the last thing that Jesus said on the cross is, it is finished. He fully satisfied the wrath of God by his substitutionary sacrifice as the one who's the eternal God who took all of our sins upon him so it is sufficient for everyone and effective for anyone who would trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The power of God is revealed there at the cross and we see that because he is the one who then rose again and so they throw, sin throws death at uh, Adam and he is risen again to give salvation to anyone who will receive it. 
And so it's faith in him and what he has done for us. And so the wrath of God really deals with our sins. So every accusation of your own conscience, every accusation of those around you, every accusation of the enemy of your soul, the sin and shortcomings that they and you clearly see, and all the sin and shortcomings that they and you don't even see, his wrath consumed them in his son. And the guilt is gone. (laughs) But if you refuse him, if you refuse him who offers you salvation today, his wrath remains because your sin remains. If you face him in your sin, you face him in his wrath. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jesus said, Luke 12, 3, three through 5, he said, whatever you have said in the dark, it shall be heard in the lights. We're not going to cover anything. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So I tell you, Jesus says, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Believer in Jesus Christ, as we meditate on the wrath of God, where sin exists, his wrath functions. So you are not under condemnation because of your sins. Judicially, your sins are paid for. Yet, we know we still sin, practically. And where sin exists, his wrath still functions and he will discipline you. Out of his wrath, always balanced with the rest of his attributes, yet anger. Fear God. Hate those sinful ways. Hate those things that consume our resources and our time that are less than the greatest of good, God Himself. Don't exchange for the images, repent from that. Repent from our sinful ways. Let me conclude with this long quote from William Gurnell, an author in Anglican clergy. He wrote in this in 1660. When I consider how the goodness of God is abused by the greatest part of mankind, I cannot but be of his mind and said, that said, the greatest miracle in the world is God's patience and bounty to an ungrateful world. If a prince has an enemy that is in one of his towns, he does not send them in provisions, but lays siege to the place and does what he can to starve them. But the great God that could wink all his enemies into destruction bears with them and at daily cost maintains them. So it ought not to surprise those who follow him to do good to the evil and unthankful. But think not, sinners, that you shall escape thus. God's mill goes slow but grinds small. The more admirable his patience and bounty now is the more dreadful and unsupportable it will that fury be when arises out of his abused goodness. 
nothing smoother than the sea, yet when stirred into a tempest, nothing rages more. Nothing so sweet as the patience and goodness of God, and nothing so terrible as His wrath when it takes fire. Unwittingly, we cherish, Christian, God's wrath when we weakly take the Lord's Supper. We're reminded again that by taking the bread that Jesus' body was broken for us, and we are reminded again by taking the cup that His blood was shed on our behalf, the blood that seals the new covenant. He took God's wrath on our behalf. And so we again this morning, in our rhythm, cherish, cherish this reality that Christ is the one who saves us from what is justly ours, the wrath of God. Father, thank you. Pray, Father, that we would fear you. Pray that you would grow in us this grace of fear that would cause us to see, see clearly the world around us, to see clearly our own hearts, to see clearly our own sin, that, Father, we would not give ourselves to that which will not satisfy, but that continually you will, will be working and cause us to be repentant people who, again, trust that you are the greatest good and that we will sell all to have you. So, Father, continue to increase our fear of you, that we might live our lives for you, for your glory, and for our greatest joy. We thank you, Father, for the supper that reminds us again of what Christ did on our behalf, that we might be people who can live a life of joy. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.